Normally, I ask you to take out your Bibles and turn with me today to a passage, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. So you don't necessarily have to bring out your Bibles. I would encourage you maybe to take notes, take a piece of paper, because the purpose behind today's sermon and today's preaching is going to be a means of assisting you while you study God's Word and the things that you can get out of it. You know, it's only been a couple of weeks ago, any of you noticed, coming in the downstairs, we had the whole basement repainted. And part of that was going to be my own office. And in preparation for it, you take everything that's on the wall and you just stack it up in the middle. And the minute we did that, I went, okay, I'm treating this like a move. And whenever you move, that is prime time to purge. And I said, my office is going on a diet, and it's going to lose a lot of weight. We're going to get rid of all this stuff that I don't use. And that meant going through the bookshelves and looking at the various books that I had. And there was a bunch of them as I looked, and I go, you know, I know I read this, but I can't tell you a single thing that is in this book to this day. I'd have to open it, check it out, read, and see if I made any notes in order to retain anything. But um, the contents, I mean, they left probably the minute the, chap the last chapter was read and it went on the shelf. And th that never happens with your Bible reading too, does it? Now, we all struggle with this, don't we? There are times when we are going through God's Word and we're reading it, but then a little time goes by and then it's like we never even read it at all. And I liken it to sort of the Cheesecake Factory menu and that we've got all these things, but our brains only remember the few things that we like on that. And sometimes that's what happens with us as we read and we consume God's Word. Have you ever thought, one day, you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to be walking along, and over here comes Obadiah, and here comes Ezra. And you start to greet them, and they go, hey, hey, i got a question for you. What would you think about my book? What will you say? Because remember, you can't lie in heaven. You can't say, what book? Uh, who are you? Uh, you know, it's kind of coming clean. Well, I'm sure it was good. I'm sure it was helpful. But I don't remember it. And I'd like to suggest a reason why often we don't remember the parts of, uh, many parts of the Scriptures. It's because we don't fully understand the wisdom and the strategy behind the Holy Spirit's direction to that author unto us. We don't really know where the writer is going. And so, as a result, we lose our sense of connection to what's being said in this, and then it becomes just sort of like a history book for many of us. But the whole purpose behind reading this is not to know information. Amen? There's a bigger reason. It's to know God. It's not even just so that I know how to live life. That's a byproduct. The end goal is that we might know God and know who He is. But things get in our way whenever we start to read this book, and we don't achieve that end. Like when books are often repetitive, and we kind of go, yeah, 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 I got that already, I got that, and tend to want to move on. Or there's a cultural thing that's happening within the text of the Scripture, and we just don't understand that. When there's genealogies, aren't those a joy to, go, <laughs> to read as you're going along? Or sometimes a passage won't make sense to us because we don't grasp the context of what the bigger story that's going on and why this is in here in this place. So as a result, there are particular books in our Bible, so let's all be honest, that we just kind of put on the shelf and we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to. Well, for today's sermon, what I want to do to you is, in humility, try to help you, even as I myself try to help myself in this reading and understanding. As we go through a particular book written 
what most believed to be by a prophet whose name was Ezra. And um, my goal is that as you begin to read through this book in the coming days, if you follow with us through our Bible reading plan, God will actually speak to you through a book that many people can put on the shelf. That book, it's actually two of them. And that is, we're going to be looking at both First and Second Chronicles. So again, the application when we leave here today that I hope that you will have is to understand and ultimately hear from God, to know this book. And so with the time, the precious time that you have, that you would devote to reading and to studying this book, maybe that you would not only remember some of the information that you get from the words on the page, but you would grow in your love of God himself as you see great things about him. Now, a really great way to get something out of a book from the scriptures is to kind of purpose to get into the shoes of the people that were going to be the first audience. Because every book has a specific audience. Ultimately, God's speaking to all of us in the world. But it's helpful to get into that initial first audience and to understand where they were coming from. Because when you understand why a book was written to the people that it was written to, the intent behind the message often will become timeless. And then we start to see, ah, now I see how that isn't just for them. This is also for me as well. This book, the Chronicles, in the Hebrew, it isn't called the Chronicles. Often Hebrew writers, what they did when they titled a book is they just took the first few words of the book, and that was its name. And so for the Hebrews, this was called the Word of the Days, because that's how the book began. And it wasn't until several years later when folks decided, we need to get this translated into Greek, so that the people that can't read Hebrew can also understand what this, what this book says. Uh, it was the Greek writers who summarized it a different way. They called it the things left over. Or one particularly poor way, I personally think, it got titled, it was, in, uh, it was summarized as the omissions, the things left out, which makes it sound like First and Second Kings got published way too early, and the editors need to come along after the fact and say, oh, we forgot to include this, we got to get this, we got to uh, get this part of the message out. Kind of like some of your emails. Uh, When you get that thing out and you go, oh, I forgot, I needed to include this. That's not the intent at all behind what's going on with the Chronicles. There are things in this book that you don't discover when you're reading 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel. Why is that? Well, again, we'll back up. The original hearers to this were Jews coming out of exile. 70 years, three and a half generations of people that have been in exile in a foreign land, and now they're finally getting a chance to come back to their homeland. And uh, as they're coming along, again, if Ezra was the writer, Ezra, we know, was both a scribe and a priest in his day. And so he, along with his people, are returning to a devastated land. You go back to Jerusalem, there's no temple. It was destroyed. Your home's more than likely gone. Your ancestors' homes, gone. Things are just in sort of a a disarray as these refugees come back and they are coming back from the stark reminder, we got a hard judgment from God. He was rough on us. And that exile was rough on them. So as Ezra is looking around at these people, he realizes something. Their greatest need is not groceries. Their greatest need isn't even a roof over their head. These people, their greatest need is they need hope. 
They need a hope that God, even though he had sent them away into exile, had not abandoned them. Because it'd be very easy to think that. We have forsaken God. He has now utterly forsaken us. We are, we are, it's like we are dead to him. And yeah, we were released and now we can come back. But to what? So what does a series of omissions in a book like this give us in stories and instructions? And what does it have to offer to a people who were just beat down? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to use Ezra as these books as a means to give them that hope that they desperately needed. And here's how he's going to do it. He's going to begin by looking at the past works of God. Now, for all you engineers, you'll understand, you'll appreciate this. Now, I'll work it from a graph, from a chart. You look in the past works and you see these ups and downs in your life, but you see the overall progression of how God was at work in their life. And then, Ezra's going to purpose to look ahead. He's going to say, now let's not forget some of the promises that God has given to us as well so that we know what a desti- our destiny is. And between those two, anybody reading was meant to extrapolate with the faithfulness of God and to have a faith and a trust in him to bridge that gap and that chasm. And Ezra knew that the hope for the future would lie in these people getting their worship of the one true God right Because for too long, what had they done? They had focused on idols. They had looked elsewhere besides God for their worship. Ezra makes a point, no, this is a holy God, the only one. And we come to worship him on his terms, not ours. We are made in his image. He's not made in ours. And we're going to align our lives to him. That's why when you read this book, these two books, you're going to see a lot of ink spilt on things like the temple. Because that was the place of worship. And Ezra would need to remind the people of God's choosing of them as the key behind his faithfulness unto them. It wasn't because they were so good. It was because he had chosen them. Y'all remember back in the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I'm going to give you land, seed, descendants, and I'm going to make you a blessing in the world. And it would be easy to go, did God renege on that? I think this is one of the important reasons why the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God cannot go back on his word. Ezra is going to remind them there's past works, there's future promise. We're going to bridge that gap and trust him. There was also the Davidic covenant that God had established with David to saying, we're going to have kings that are going to come from you and there's going to be a line, a never even line until we get to the eternal ruling king which is going to be ultimately Jesus. And so you see this kingly line. It seemed like it might have stopped with King Zedekiah when they were conquered. And yet time goes on, and there's the promise of a future king. You don't get his name yet in this book. But because we live in the New Testament, we know who that coming king is. His name is Jesus and the one who would ultimately rule. And finally, you're going to see a lot of things in this book regarding the temple of God. And I I would just remind you, it's a different day and an age. Today, you are called the temple of God. You are the place that God will abide and live in and inhabit. You're his home. But in that day, there was a particular place. That temple is where God would abide. You were meant to go to the temple. And and in doing so, bring your acts of worship before him. So there's a whole lot of instructions in this book on what this thing is going to be like. And why is that? Because God has made it clear, I'm holy. And everything that I do has a purpose. 
and it makes this, uh, has a message, and I want you all to know and to capture that. And so Ezra, along with the other reformers, they tell these stories, most of them about the southern tribes in Judah, but they tell it to give a sense of continuity with the great past that they had, a focus on the temple and the worship as the place where that continuity was going to be maintained. We're not going to be oriented ultimately in Jerusalem. It is God that is our unifying one. That will be the focus. Take these books, divide them up into three parts. Part one, I'm going to call it Roots. Y'all remember that book, for those of you old enough, they made it a TV miniseries from Alex Haley and Roots and Kuta Kinte and sort of the descendants of a slave and uh, uh, that, that story unfolding. But when you get to the first nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles, let me tell you something. You go back to some Roots, and it is tough to read. Think reading a phone book in Hebrew, because that's all it is. It's names, one name after the other, names you can't pronounce, most of them faceless to you. You don't have a connection with them. They're, un you're, they're unfamiliar with them. And by the way, there's no plot at all. There's no story in this that happens. Why is it here? Because it comes down to this. If the Jew was going to have a proper worship of God, then again, God had established what those means were going to be like. And one of those means was going to be through a line, a lineage, that the priests would come from the line of Levi. And as you go, you'll see each of these tribes, but then you'll start to see these are the ones who are going to be the priesthood. And you're reminded God has promised he would uphold them, and the line has held. There is a line with which you can establish a priesthood. But it isn't just the priesthood because there's a focus on the king, and the king must come from the line of Judah. And so you're going to see, again, these names as they make their way, you know, as time goes on, until you can ultimately trace and track God is holding the line. He's keeping these people. And so, again, you go to God's past and you extrapolate from there to that future hope and remembering, as you read every single one of those names, these people are meant to remember you are not abandoned. God is still seeing his promises through. And chapter after chapter after chapter of names, that's what you hold to. God is holding. God is holding. God is preserving. And they were meant to have hope instilled in them because of that. And we are too. Part two in this book, chapter 10 all the way through 2 Chronicles 9 is about what I'll call the UK, and I don't mean Great Britain. I mean the United Kingdom in Israel when north and south were together under both David and under Solomon. And a lot of people would have looked at that and said, okay, we're going back to the good old days when we were one and we were unified, and that's true. It's done by focusing first on David as king and David's purpose that he wanted to worship his God. And he purposed that there was going to be a temple built in the first place. As a result, he couldn't build it. He's going to pass it on to his son Solomon. And so Solomon will then come, and then there's a focus on him. And you see this temple that has been built for worship. And as a result, then you find people come to God on his terms. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what's timeless. We don't go to a temple, but we come to God on his terms, the terms that he has established and that he has built and he has upheld. Now, when Ezra is writing these biographies, let me just say this. If you needed someone to write your history, your biography, you want this guy. And the reason you want him is he leaves out all the bad stuff. 
He is a guy who just likes to say, let's, can we just stay positive? Let's just talk about mainly the good stuff, particularly with David and with Solomon. And so he leaves out a lot of the, the, the things that are negative about them. And boy, it's kind of like the opposite of our culture these days, right? We, uh, we, we have someone who's an individual, we highly respect them, but then we find out, you know what? There's a few skeletons in their closet. They're sinners. And what happens? <clears throat> Canceled. We can't deal with those people anymore. But the reality is, that's every single one of us. We dig deep enough, you're a scary person. Um, You've heard me say it before. If you knew about me, what I know about me, you probably wouldn't let me preach. But I take comfort in the fact that if we knew about you, what you know about you, we wouldn't let you come in. We'd block that door and we'd keep you out. Because it's just too scary. That's what you find often when you read about in the, in the first and second kings about each of these people. But Ezra won't do that. He's going to put a focus on what is best about them. In some ways, I have particularly wondered if first and second kings isn't more like a human perspective on everything. And in that, we get to see the individual. We get to see the dirt and the grime and the blood and the sin. And then we get to Chronicles, and it's almost like a heavenly perspective on the individual. And you see them almost under the mercy, the umbrella of the mercy of God's grace. And he remembers and he sees that, which is good. By way of example, you're going to get in the book of Second Chronicles, and you're going to read about this guy named King Manasseh. Manasseh is bad, bad, bad. He's a, one of the chief idolaters. He murders his own children, sacrificing them. Um, Tradition has it, he's the one who took the prophet Isaiah, found a hollow tree trunk, stuck him in the tree trunk, and had the trunk cut in half. That's how he killed God's prophet. And I hear something like that, and I think, no mercy. Let that guy go. Give him the justice that he deserves. But fascinating, what 2 Kings omits and Chronicles includes is an emphasis on Manasseh's repentance and his restoration unto God, that God would look on him in that light and work and transform his heart. And the idea being, if he's the worst, he's a prime example of any exile figure whose repentance was a sign that God could still bring restoration to the land and to the kingdom. Because if he did it for Manasseh, there's a chance he could do it for us. And that is timeless, is it not? God does that for us as well. So if there's hope for him, (laughs) then there's hope for you and I. The failures that David went through and experienced, especially, they're not mentioned. As I mentioned, it's kind of like a heavenly view. Praise the Lord. And so we, we, we almost get this chance of just seeing things like we will in heaven. You ever stop and think about that? You go to heaven one day, and you're going to be walking around, and you're going to see some people, and you're going to point and you go, how in the world did you get in? And they're going to point and do the same thing. I don't know. Tell me how you got <laughs> because, and we'll, what we'll all have in common is we'll marvel that any of us were called to get there, that any of us could be present there. And when you read Chronicles, you start to see when God looks in this light of these people who will repent and follow after him, there is this, there's this mindset of love for them and restoration unto them. Part three is the final part in these, taken from chapters 10 of Second Chronicles all the way to the end in 36, and it's primarily just about Judah. 
and the various kings that they had at that time. And you see, you see how people respond to God. You see the traits listed and the things that they do. And many of them are good with the implication, now you go and do likewise. So as you're reading, you're starting to see these people who will seek God. And they live in humility before him. They pray to him. They turn to him. Even after maybe at times where they weren't following him, but then they would change and pursue him. And you read and you start to discover how God wants his community of people to discover the power of renewal and of faithfulness. It's a big deal in this book. But equally, there's the warning. The warning of what happens when we reject God and his call. So if I take these two books and just kind of put some overarching things that you can hold on to them, First Chronicles is going to be primarily about King David and building up that temple. And Second Chronicles is going to be primarily about the worship that goes on in that temple and then the lives of the kings. There's your information. Can I give you a few things to think about, to pray about, to look for as you read? The higher parts of the book, let me just call it that way, that I think are ultimately timeless for all of us regarding the character of God and what God looks for in his people. First, look at the ways that the great mercy of God is shown in these books. You read them, watch how God establishes this clean slate with a very guilty nation. Those who should be the objects of his wrath, and he just wipes the slate clean and he starts anew. That's what you find at the very end of 2 Chronicles, a new opportunity. And you're meant to remember that as well. God wipes the slate clean. Amen? That's what we have in Jesus Christ, that he's taken that and he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. And we can experience and know the great mercy of God, and we need it daily. But then look also how Israel is called to live faithfully. That being cleansed, that clean slate is not just so they could go back and go doing what they always did before. It's meant to generate a response. And through that, they're also meant to remember that no matter who's in charge, no matter what government, no matter what king is over them, they're going to be reminded that there is a coming king. And that's the one that they're ultimately to live for and to remember. I find it interesting when you go to the New Testament, remember Matthew, how it opens when we looked at it? Genealogy. You get in the book of Luke, you hardly get a couple chapters in, then what do you find? Big old genealogy, once again. And you see this same pattern. It's God giving you these names saying, the line is held. The line is held. I'm being faithful. And that's generating a call into us to not only say, this is your coming king, and he is the one that we're going to put our trust in, but there's a call to us, too, to trust in that and to hold to it. And part of that is living in accordance with who God is, living faithfully. And then finally, think about this. Understand, as you read it, sort of the cultural relevance that you and I will have in this. Because these are people, the, the Jews, they were the home team. When they lived in that land before the exile... They were it. They were the big boys on the block, and they had everything to themselves, and God was ruling over them, and it seemed like things were great. But now things have changed, and they're coming along. They're not the home team anymore. Other nations are. Other people are. It's a reminder to us that we're similar, are we not? Because things have changed around us, particularly in these last few years, exponentially it feels like, but they have changed around us. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm showing my age, but maybe there's others of you that can remember how the culture 
once upon a time, they considered Christianity a pretty good thing, a helpful thing. You know, we talked about Ambrose in the hospitals. And, you know, people often equated Christianity with folks who were going to come and care for them and take care of them. The pastorate was held in high regard. Uh, living a moral and holy life was seen as a good thing. And quite often in our culture, we see it's quite the opposite that is happening. In fact, I was talking with my son recently, when he just moved from Boston, and he was, he was just expressing the difference in how people respond and react to him um, here in Northern Virginia as opposed to there. And I said, well, what's, what's one thing that's really different? And he said, well, here's one thing that's different. If I was talking to anybody, and I so much as said church or God, conversation was over. They were like, oh, implied, you're one of those people. Nice knowing you and just kind of push you off to the side. And some of you, that's your workplace. That's happening to you right now as well. Oh, you're one of those people? Yeah, it was nice knowing you. Um, I got other things and more important things to do. In a lot of ways, you're going to relate to these exiles. So you come into a new kingdom, struggling with community living, trying to cope with a life in which you and I were placed on the margins of society, a society that's afraid of us, a society that is suspicious of us, a society that imputes hate against us when we don't hate. More and more often, we find ourselves like First Peter, aliens and strangers in this world, do we not? You and I are called to be like these people, to go to establish an identity as a people of God in an age in which the surrounding culture dominates our lives so profoundly. But we can be a people who also can look back and can see how God worked in the past and remember his promises to the future to then live according to that irrevocable plan and find that we have a hope for today. To be a people who keep the worship of a holy God sacred such that our lives aren't merely going to be ones that sing songs. That's important. That's an expression of our worship. But it goes so much deeper that the entirety of our lives is a demonstration of worship and integrity unto God. So as you read this book, when you hit some of these dry, dry spots along the way, come back to this. Come back to remember what was the strategy, what was the purpose, and why was this put here? There's a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds really good, so I'm going to share it. In which there were these two dukes, Reynald the Elder and Edward the Younger. They were brothers. And uh, they got in a big quarrel, big fight. In fact, both of them took sort of their fiefdoms, their kingdoms, and went against one another in war. And it was the younger, Edward, who defeated Reynald. And as a result, typically you would kill the king who was your adversary, or the duke who was your adversary. But Edward didn't do that to his brother. He did something else different. He imprisoned him. But he locked him up in a prison in which the windows were not locked and neither were any doors. And Edward told his brother Reynald, you are free to leave at any time you want. And when you do, I will restore you your kingdom and I will restore you your lands. I will give you everything you want. Now, why wouldn't Reynald leave? Because he was grossly obese and the windows and the doors were small. All he had to do was go on a diet, and he could leave. But Edward knew his brother. And so every day, 
he sent him all these really fine, rich delicacies, such that every day Reynold would eat and eat and eat and never be able to make it out the door. And people accused Edward of being cruel against his brother. And he said, cruel? My brother is free to leave at any time he wishes. He is not a prisoner to me. Edward knew he's a prisoner to his appetite. That's what got Israel in trouble. Israel had an appetite for the worship of so many things, but not the true worship of God. And as a result, they couldn't be free. They were enslaved. And Ezra writes this as a reminder to his people. Ladies and gentlemen, you are free. And if you are imprisoned, it's because you have put the wrong thing as your appetite and engaged and um, consumed. You've got to get your worship right. Next few weeks, as you read the omissions, I pray that your mind does not omit what it has to communicate to you about who God is. My prayer is that instead of omitting it from your minds, instead, what, this is what it'll do. It'll open up a vision for each one of us, for the community to live faithfully wherever we are, in whatever nation, whatever land we may happen to be, that we might be, as we are called to be, representatives of hope in this world as we worship the one God in spirit and in truth.